Leslie Marshall Show, the only true democracy in talk radio, of, for, and by you, the people, live nationwide and streaming live at LeslieMarshallShow.com. Call in with your thoughts at 888-6-LESLIE. I'm Leslie Marshall, and this is the only true democracy in talk, the Leslie Marshall Show, on remote broadcast live from Los Angeles today. Good to be with you on this Friday. Well, funny, in Los Angeles, the weather is getting cooler, but in the rest of the uh, areas that got slammed with snow and ice, it's going to be a little bit more temperate and mild. It is Friday. Thank God it's Friday. And uh, I'm thankful for our guest today. She's been on before. She's awesome. We learn a lot. We have a great discussion coming up in this hour. I hope you'll be a part of it. In addition to all the places that you listen to us, we're now available starting this week. We're so glad to be with you live on the NRM Streamcast in in addition to live streams and uh, tape streams and podcasts uh, everywhere. Uh, A lot more listening opportunities for you, a lot more choice, and we're all about choice. We have joining us today, Roxanne Brown. Roxanne is the USW's new international vice president at large. And for 20 years, she has served USW members from the union's legislative offices in our nation's capital, Washington, D.C., most recently as legislative director. She continues to oversee the union's public policy and legislative agenda, as well as its political work. And throughout her career, She has worked with members and allies to advance policies on Capitol Hill and with regulatory agencies to help workers. She has extensive experience in defense procurement policy, environmental regulation, energy, cement specialty, metals, and biomass carbon neutrality. She helped advance legislation to strengthen U.S. defense procurement laws, ensuring that the vehicles, planes, and ships used by our military and built by USW members In Newport News, Virginia, local 8888, and also in York, Pennsylvania, local 7687, are made with USW-produced materials, United Steelworkers produced materials. She also played a key role in shaping environmental policies with the potential to affect USW jobs, including the Boiler Maximum Achievable Control Technologies. That's the Boiler MACT rule. That's intended to reduce hazardous air pollutants from boilers. She works with USW members and the EPA to achieve environmental worker and community safety goals while avoiding a broad negative impact to USW members. And she gave an excellent interview the last time she was on the show. So what did we say? Come on back. And we're excited to have her back today. Roxanne, good afternoon. Happy Friday. Thank you for joining us with your busy schedule. Good to have you with us again. Leslie, I really appreciate it, and it's so good to be back and to hear your voice. I, it's always a joy, so thank you. Well, I, I'm done. Let's go to the weekend now. No, I'm just joking. <laughs> thank you. <laughs> thank you. I appreciate it. There's so much to talk about, and, uh, you know, these issues come up with the debates and polls that shows people are, you know, this is top of mind, whether people are Democrats or Republicans, um, because people care about trade, people care about infrastructure, they care about China, they care about tariffs. 
Uh, they care about the, the economy, both locally and globally, and they care about the United States standing in that economy on the global level, level our competitiveness, right? So regarding trade infrastructure for global competitiveness, um, first question out of the box, Roxanne, how has disinvestment in domestic shipbuilding, port development, and highway maintenance undercut the ability of the United States to compete globally? You know, Leslie, it impacts everything. Um, you know, it, really, the U.S., just in 28 alone, for example, exported roughly $2.5 trillion in, in goods and services across the world. And that was only possible because of our infrastructure system. And, you know, I think everyone knows that throughout the infrastructure systems in, in the U.S., there are, there are so many failures from our bridges to our water systems to, to ports um, that haven't been dredged in, you know, in, in years, um, you know, that, that have really impacted the ability to move even more of these goods and services. And when you can't move goods and services, you can't produce at facilities across the country. And, you know, what we've seen uh, in, in particular, I would say, in our commercial shipbuilding sector is just a significant loss in global presence and, and in an ability to really play a really effective and key role in the export of these goods. Um, you know, there was a time in the U.S. where we were a leader in commercial shipbuilding, and today we rank about 19th in the world uh, uh, for commercial shipbuilding with you know, nations like South Korea and Japan and, and China, you know, just, just way ahead of us. So, you know, overall, there is a tremendous amount of um, investment that needs to happen in our infrastructure broadly, uh, but particularly in our trade infrastructure, because without that, you know, the, the millions of, of products steelworker members make across this country from steel to, to rubber to glass, you know, to cement, the list goes on and on, have nowhere uh, to go in terms of, of global trade um, if, if our systems fail. Uh, and with regard to that, I mean, obviously, the foreign subsidies for shipbuilding and related manufacturing have completely destroyed so many jobs here in the United States, right? That's right. That's right. That's right. You know, in, in, in terms of shipbuilding, every direct shipbuilding job supports about three other jobs. So, you know, it's it's not just a direct job, but it's, you know, it's the steel that, that may go into a ship. It's the engineer. It's, you know, I mean, the list goes on and on, right? And on average, the jobs in shipbuilding pay, you know, between, you know, 73000 and, you know, and 85000 depending on where you are in the, on the, in the country. And, um, you know, the, the significant loss that has occurred in commercial shipbuilding since really the 80s. Um, you know, there was a time before the Reagan administration where um, the, the commercial shipbuilding industry was subsidized, like, like it is uh, in other countries around the world, to, to support and prop up the industry. And it, w President Reagan made a determination to remove those subsidies for, for U.S. commercial shipbuilding. And that action sent a death knell, essentially, throughout the entire uh, commercial uh, sector. I, I mentioned before that, that nations like South Korea 
and and Japan are ahead of us. I mean, and, and that we were once first in the world. We now make up about one percent of of global production in terms of commercial shipbuilding. What? Yes. Where South Korea is at 37%, Japan is about 27%, and China is about 21%. So, you know, that one action uh, just significantly impacted and had a ripple effect throughout, throughout communities across the country. Um, president Conway, Tom Conway, our new president, just blogged actually this, this past week about what happened in Philadelphia um, at, at, a, at a, a former commercial shipbuilding facility there that, that closed once the subsidies you know, were, were eliminated. Over 4,000 jobs were lost. And again, remember I said, for every one shipbuilding job, there are three other jobs that are supported. So those four, over 4,000 jobs were multiplied by three. So you have roughly, you know, 12,000, 13,000 jobs in a key uh, region. In this case, it was Chester, uh, Pennsylvania, that was essentially um, just decimated. And, you know, today there is a uh, casino that's paying, you know, probably minimum wage jobs versus the, the high-paying family-sustaining jobs that existed at that, that shipyard, uh, and also a state penitentiary. And that is not how you revitalize a community. Um, and so it's, it's not just um, the loss of this really critical um, um, facility to, to the U.S. and this community, but it's also the failure to create a future um, for, for the community that, that was left behind. Wow. Powerful stuff. You know, when you point out our government and all that they've done to screw up our country's trade infrastructure, what can our government do at this point to help improve it? Because obviously, when you're at the bottom, the only way you would think to go is up. But the government does have to do things and can do things to help improve our country's trade infrastructure. Uh, what are some of those recommendations? Well, again, on a very basic level, just investing uh, in infrastructure writ large uh, plays a significant role in terms of revitalizing key industries in the U.S. Just a $1 billion investment in infrastructure creates about 21,000 jobs. And oftentimes when people think about infrastructure, they think just construction. Um, but, but really, you know, that type of investment really does benefit uh, domestic manufacturing as well particularly when you attach really strong standards to it, like domestic procurement standards, um, otherwise known as Buy America, where there are requirements. Whenever taxpayer dollars are, are used or spent for any infrastructure project, that the steel uh, and the iron and the cement that's going into these products projects have to be uh, made in the United States. So when you apply those types of standards to, to infrastructure investment, it really creates a ripple effect throughout the entire economy um, to create jobs, to maintain jobs at facilities that our members work at, you know, across the country, and to really shore up the infrastructure in a way that we need. So that's just the, the first piece, is, is making the investment just just writ large and making sure that the policy includes common sense things like Buy America. But then it's also 
you know, there's no silver bullet, right, when it comes to infrastructure. It's really kind of a cobbling together of really critical and key pieces um, across the various needs and systems. In terms of trade infrastructure, uh, Congressman uh, Garamendi from California and, and, and Senator uh, Wicker from, from Mississippi have a really good bill called the Energizing American Shipbuilding Act, which would again, I keep using this word revitalize because it's so key to everything that we fight for at the steelworkers, but, you know, revitalizing uh, to a degree the the domestic, um, you know, commercial shipbuilding sector. And, and the bill would essentially require that vessels uh, built in the U.S. transport 15% of, of total uh, seaborne LNG exports by 2041. This is key because today... We, there are no U.S. commercial ships exporting any LNG coming from the United States. Zero. There are zero ships. And if you just look at, I'm sorry, go ahead, Leslie. No, zero. I'm, I'm in shock. Yeah, zero. And if you just look at Pennsylvania, you know, uh, LNG from Pennsylvania alone goes to about 20 foreign countries. So that again speaks to the the global reach of the of the of the products that are being sent from the United States out into the world, but they're going out into the world from Pennsylvania on foreign ships. There are zero U.S. made ships that are transporting this product that is coming from American workers and American industry out into the world. So Garamendi's bill would require that at least 15% of the LNG exports coming from the U.S. Um, uh, by 2041 are, are done on, on ships built here in the United States. Likewise, um, in terms of crude oil exports, you know, we, we do a lot of that, you know, here in the United States as well. It require about 10% of the total, you know, seaborne crude, export, crude oil exports um, to be done on, on U.S. vessels by 2033. And, you know, in terms of the impact, that would that would be about 40 ships, to be to be quite honest, which would be a plus up from where we are right now because we are well below that. Um, it would be roughly 28 LNG ships and 12 oil tankers. You know, it doesn't sound like that many. We're going to take a quick break. We're going to be back with our guests. Don't you go away. I want you to keep listening. We have lots more to talk about uh, with regard to jobs and also with regard to safety. So stick around. More coming up with Roxanne Brown, the USW's United Steelworkers, new international vice president at large. We'll be back with her. We'll be back with you right after this. I'm Leslie Marshall. Hey there, I'm Leslie Marshall. We are back with Roxanne Brown, the United Steelworkers' new international vice president at large. And before the break, we were talking about jobs and specifically uh, infrastructure and uh, domestic shipbuilding and just some uh, alarming numbers and what it's done uh, to jobs here in the United States, to people's incomes, their livelihoods. Roxanne, thank you for holding. Welcome back. Um, you know what? We talked about jobs, but you know, one thing to me, I don't want to go on a ship that somebody outside this country's built. I'm not comfortable with that. But does not being able to build our own ships not just affect, you know, uh, finances and, and jobs, but also affect America's safety? Absolutely. Um, and, you know, we're, we're in a situation now where because we – 
basically ceded uh, our much of our trade infrastructure to the world, right? So, um, you know, the the loss of of the support for the commercial sector with the subsidies being taken off under the the Reagan administration, but but the reciprocal not happening from around the world. So the rest of the world still includes their subsidies. So the loss of our of our ability to to make ships at the level we were making. Um, is gone. So with that went the infrastructure that goes with that. So, you know, today you have a situation where, um, you know, a lot of uh, states are sourcing their uh, their their uh, port infrastructure from overseas. So you have uh, super Panamax, uh, super post Panamax cranes um, to being brought over from China to be able to meet the demands of the super ships, the super cargo ships that are pulling into ports and need the big cranes. Because why? We don't make the cranes here. Why don't we make the cranes? Because, again, we ceded our shipbuilding capacity, our our commercial shipbuilding capacity to to much of the world. And if you're not making the ships – you know, you you lose that that kind of in, uh, industrial base that that surrounds that that industry. Uh, likewise, with the docks, we on the on the military side, we heard a really disturbing story a few years back, where Ingalls Shipbuilding um, was looking for a new dry dock for its its um, its facility down in in the Gulf. And they went over to China to look at the the capacity and the ability that they have there to to build dry docks. And again, this dry dock would be, you know, purchased from China and brought to the United States to be used at a yard making U.S. Navy ships. Okay, Roxanne, hold that thought. We have a short break. Uh, That was our shortest segment. We'll be back right after this. Hey, happy Friday. I'm Leslie Marshall. Welcome, welcome back. And we welcome back the United Steelworkers' new international vice president at large, Ms. Roxanne Brown. More than a pleasure to have her with us. Roxanne, my apologies for cutting you off. We had a tight break. When we have a floater, I have more freedom. Uh, but otherwise, the powers that be get mad at me. So I, don't, I want you to be able to finish. We were talking about not being able to build ships our own ships and how that affects not just American jobs, not just finances, but safety. Uh, Please uh, finish what you were saying there. I apologize again uh, for cutting you off. Oh, no worries at all, Leslie. Thanks. No, I, you know, I was just uh, talking about the fact that we're seeing more and more uh, big ports across the country sourcing their, their cranes and, and their port infrastructure and their trade infrastructure from from China, which is just a really disturbing thing that's that's happening, and you know we're seeing it, um, you know, happen in, in in cities like like Philadelphia and and Tacoma and and in Port Everglades in Florida and New Orleans, and and sourcing them from state-owned uh, co- uh, companies from China, which means that these are companies that um, have significant control from the Chinese government. And that presents um, a security uh, challenge, you know, and, and I was specifically speaking about Ingalls Shipbuilding down in the Gulf, and they, they make Navy ships, that's it. They, they, they don't make commercial ships, they only make Navy ships. And um, a few years back, they were looking to purchase a new dry dock. And 
and they went over to China to, to check out their dry docks and um, really were were strongly considering, um, you know, purchasing this dry dock to be used at the yard in the Gulf where they're making these Navy ships. And if you talk to, to any experts really on, on Asia, there's just great concern that, you know, Chinese companies um, that have deep ties to the Chinese government, you know, like state-owned enterprises, can embed, you know, listening devices or other, you know, intel devices into the infrastructure that is being built and used at these ports, which really would prevent uh, present a significant security risk and challenge, not just to our warships and our weapon systems, you know, but on the commercial side uh, with these cranes and other, um, you know, pieces used for the infrastructure uh, in terms of our goods and our services. So it's, it's just not an ideal situation. Yeah. So if people are just tuning in, if you're listening and if you're not taking notes, I certainly did. In the span of 12 years, we, the United States, went from being one of the biggest commercial shipbuilders in the world to producing virtually zero, no ocean-going commercial vessels at all. You just heard Roxanne tell us this uh, last segment. And shipbuilders could not compete with subsidized competitors in other countries. And as a result, tens of thousands of workers in shipbuilding and related industries have lost their jobs back since the 1980s. Ports, you just heard, have no option but to rely on critical shipbuilding infrastructure like super cranes and dry docks from China, Roxanne mentioned. And then safety, national security is at stake. The military relies on a fleet of semi-retired vessels it can use for emergency missions. But in a recent test, only 40% of those deemed ready were even leave the port. I don't know about you. This this is a no-brainer. This is a political win for Democrats or Republicans. you got to fix our infrastructure. And another reason is, uh, Roxanne, America's infrastructure infamously scored a grade of D-plus three years ago in 2017. I would imagine it's likely deteriorated since then. What currently is the status of our country's infrastructure, of our country's highways, of our country's bridges? You, you know, that's a really um, great question, Leslie, and we're still waiting on uh, the um, American Society of Civil Engineers to update that 2017 study because it really is, um, it's, it's, it's quite, you know, disheartening. Like you said, you know, D-plus overall score, we're talking a lot about ports right now, and, you know, the ports are a C-plus. Our bridges are a C plus. You know, our our drinking water is is a D. Um, you know, if if we think about you know superstorms, right, and and what happened with uh, Katrina so many years ago, um, our levees are a D, right. So if if you look around just the entire system, you see that there are so many failures, and and you know, and really you take it to our kids. Um, in terms of our schools, you know, our, our public schools, and they're D plus, right? So this this goes back to what I mentioned earlier about the the one billion dollars in infrastructure invest, investment across all of these systems, whether you're talking about transportation or energy or water or our buildings, wherever, um, you know, the 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 significant impact it would have not just on jobs but in terms of 
resilience and and keeping our communities safer because that's a big part of what infrastructure does. Anyone who lives in the Northeast uh, and experienced the devastation of Sandy can tell you what happened to its transportation, what happened to the transportation infrastructure in the Northeast and how long it took people to, to kind of get their lives back together. And it's because those systems failed in the face of uh, superstorms, you know. So we we need to build our systems in a more resilient way too, to be stronger, uh, to withstand, um, you know, these weather events and keep our communities safer. Safer. So there's so much that that needs to be done and thought about when we when we talk about infrastructure. Uh, no question at all. Um, uh, no question at all. It, it's safe to say, though, even though we're waiting for actual numbers. Uh, that highways and bridges are overburdened, uh, that they're congested, they're deficient. Um, we know that in order to um, increase cross-border trade, uh, we need significant investments um, to all of these structures, correct? That's right. That's right. And, and you know, and the Democrats um, a few weeks ago uh, in the House they laid out a plan called the, the Moving Forward Framework, and it outlines um, a five-year, $760 billion investment. So if I, I'm, just, I'm just talking about that $1 billion that I keep referencing. So this $760 billion investment over five years, which is what we need. We need you know, significant and really kind of tight, close-in investment into our systems um, uh, and kind of sustained investment. And it would look across all of our systems. So for the highways, it would invest $329 billion. For for transit, it would be $105 billion. For, for rail, $55 billion. Um, you know, and we're, we're spending a lot of time talking about just our water infrastructure, you know, but our harbor infrastructure would be about – 19.7 billion and you know when we think about us and the steelworkers and the products that our members make that we're trying to get out not just here throughout the country in the United States but out into the global marketplace and we look across the water systems that they have to go across you know we have you know 926 coastal and, and inland harbors and the bulk of those need updates. They they all need updates. And so this this proposal laid out by the Democrats would be significantly helpful and and really helpful for example to steelworker employers like Liberty Steel down in South Carolina who produce, you know, steel wire and the inner harbor for that steel mill has not been sufficient to meet the company's needs. Um uh, just just be able to move the product because dredging has not happened since 2008, right? So here we are, 2020, and so this critical product that they make at this facility can't move in the way that it needs to because the water, the body of water it needs to move through hasn't been dredged in, in over a decade. So we, we, we need the investment because this one example is multiplied so many times across the country. Roxanne, just to piggyback off that point, when you talk to 
these workers because I know you know you see them face to face and you talk about how this affects them. It's got to be absolutely frustrating when they see an issue that has had bipartisan support leading up to the 2016 election. Um, you've seen speeches from President Trump saying that this should be a bipartisan issue. Now mm-hmm. you see this legislation. I mean, how do we break through the gridlock and what are you hearing from the members themselves? Oh, our members are so frustrated. They're so frustrated because, you know, infrastructure investment is, Mark, the lowest hanging possible fruit <laughs> in terms right, of what, right. what, what can be moved through Washington. Because, as you said, it has such significant bipartisan support, especially today in 2020, where, you know, there's so much gridlock and there's so much animus between the two parties and uh, so much difficulty to agree on things. Everybody agrees on infrastructure, everyone, but um, but it's it's for some you know it it keeps being stopped along the way. And I think you know when when you start drilling down into into questions like how do you pay for it, you know, and and you know difficult issues like siting when you look at energy infrastructure, that's where that's where things really start to slow the ball down. But Americans can't wait. And American industry can't wait. American workers can't wait. American communities can't wait because every single day is another failure and every single day is another lost opportunity to be, you know, a global leader in X industry, right? Whatever industry you can name in the United States that is waiting for infrastructure that can match the strength and the innovation of the American worker and the American industry, Right, but our infrastructure does not match it. That's we're waiting for it to happen. Uh, I testified a few weeks ago before the House Ways and Means Trade Subcommittee on this very issue, and I, I was Mark. It's like you were there because I was asked that same question. Well, why won't why why won't Congress do anything? And I turned the question back and I said, "You have to answer that question." <laughs> Because I can't. You know, all of us that were sitting there testifying that day, we were waiting on Congress to act. Our, you know, 850,000 members are waiting on Congress um, to act, and, and they're just not acting. We're going to take a quick break. We're going to act on the break, but we're going to come back. We're going to talk about uh, the politics of this with Roxanne, and we're going to talk about what, uh, in more detail, uh, House Democrats have put forth uh, to to make that move forward that Americans need. And like Roxanne uh, so eloquently pointed out to not only us, but before Congress, um, that Americans are long overdue for this. Our nation, our infrastructure, our bridges, um, our roads. Are, are all long overdue for this. What is, why the wait? You know, and she put it back to them, rightly so. We're going to take a break. I'm Leslie Marshall, back with her, back with you right after this. Don't go away. And we're back. I'm Leslie Marshall, back with International Vice President of the United Steel Workers, Ms. Roxanne Brown. Roxanne, thank you for holding. Welcome back. You talked about politics. You talked about testifying before Congress. I have a question. Is it, is it me or aren't voters and politicians, for one of the very few things uh, in this nation, 
in solidarity, no pun intended, talking to a union, <laughs> union president, uh, but in solidarity and in agreement when it comes to infrastructure. In other words, infrastructure is something that Democrats and Republicans agree on. This could be something they could move forward and fund in a bipartisan manner, and that would help them not only with the ratings, low approval ratings among uh, voters, uh, but especially that would help them for those that are up in the House and the Senate for re-election in November 2020. Absolutely. You know, and and here in D.C., we often say that, uh, especially for this administration, you know, there was a lot of touting of what was going to be done around a big, massive infrastructure package, and it it remains the meat left on the table. Um, you know, to your point, Leslie, yes, if, no matter what constituency or group or company you talk to, I can meet with the steel industry, I can meet with the paper industry, I can meet with the rubber industry, I can go and meet with the Sierra Club or uh, the League of Conservation Voters or another, um, you know, uh, union brother or sister from another union, the Teamsters or, or the Machinists, and we would all agree that infrastructure is the one thing that unites every single one of those entities. Even as a as a person from the labor community, you know, you know, knowing that this is an issue that would actually, you know, we'd find common ground with with the Chamber of Commerce in some ways on, right? So, so for that extreme to exist, and and this this policy to not be moved, is is just confounding to us. And you know, when there are efforts to to kind of move the ball forward, um, they're they're short term uh, and don't provide the the, the steady long-term funding that's necessary. But everyone agrees this needs to be done. And everyone agrees we could do it together. You touched upon the uh, uh, three U.S. House committees uh, that have studied this issue and put forth a plan called the Moving Forward Framework. You touched upon what it would entail, uh, talking about asserting a much-needed federal role in infrastructure development. Uh, it's a $760 billion investment plan requiring the United States build ships to transport a significant percentage um, of domestically produced oil and gas. Um, it, it would help take back business and jobs from foreign interests. I mean, wouldn't it? Wouldn't this plan, wouldn't that increase U.S. global competitiveness and certainly uh, beyond help on the job front? In other words, this is an investment, not just in infrastructure, this is an investment in America, its people, and, and, and quite frankly, so many out there that are, like you said, waiting uh, for this moment, if nothing else but for jobs. Leslie, yes, you completely touched on on everything um, that that I would say completely. Yes, you know the seven hundred and sixty billion dollar investment that that this this plan, the moving forward framework, presents would hit across the entire economy, um, and it would hit American workers. It would hit American industry. It would hit you know American communities. If I just you know if I just pick. Three things from the plan. You know, I talked about the harbor infrastructure and what that would mean for Liberty Steel down in South Carolina and the jobs at Liberty Steel and the ability for Liberty Steel to, to be globally competitive. Um, if, if you look at, you know, the, the $25 billion in drinking water investments that would happen, you know, this would help communities across the country. 
you know, you, you often hear the refrain, there's still no clean water in Flint, right, in Flint, Michigan. Flint is one example of, of many like that that exists across the country where people need clean drinking water right here in the United States. That $25 billion investment would be so key there. You know, if, if, you, if you look at, you know, just the brownfield restoration and the $2 billion that would happen there, talk about revitalizing communities, being able to invest and clean up, you know, abandoned and contaminated properties for new use is so key when it comes to uh, revitalizing communities that have, that have experienced significant loss in industry. So there's so much here that can be done to really help um, Americans just broadly and, and workers certainly. Yeah, but also, I mean, there's another win. The environment, right? Doesn't, wouldn't this help uh, reduce carbon emissions? It would. And, you know, I think, you know, both Democrats and Republicans actually on on the Hill, as they've been pulling together these infrastructure packages, have been doing it with the environment in mind. And I used the word resilience earlier, um, certainly in the mind of, of how these systems keep our communities safer. So, so definitely building the strong systems. That's where using and sourcing domestically made products are, are really key. Um, but also, like you said, uh, ins- ensuring that these systems are upgraded to mitigate, mitigate carbon emissions. So our energy systems across the country, so our, our pipelines and our grid infrastructure and all of that, upgrading them to reduce as much as possible, um, you know, any, any you know, car- carbon emissions, but also increase energy efficiency. Um, I want to give you the last minute here to just tell our listeners anything uh, further that perhaps we haven't touched upon in this hour, Roxanne. You know, I think I would just say that for a long time, uh, the the United States has just willingly ceded our innovation and our competitiveness and our ability to be true global leaders to the rest of the world. And our, our whole conversation today has been an example of that. And we have such an opportunity by doing things like investing in infrastructure to really make the United States um, and the American worker just um, just really a global powerhouse 